the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and for this month, May 2021, which is all dedicated to nutrition on the Pause platform, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Francis Cavana, who is the Assistant Director, Zoology and Wildlife Nutritionist at Wildlife Reserve Singapore, and also holds an adjunct lecturer position at Temasek Polytechnic. Welcome, Francis. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, absolutely delighted and hearing all about nutrition. Of course, I've already briefly introduced you with regard to some titles, but can you uh, explain a little bit more, you know, where you came from and, uh, and also how you got to study um, and work in zoos? Of course, sure. Um... I think like many people who are listening to this podcast, I knew I wanted to work with animals like since birth. <laughs> uh, I, I knew I wanted to work with animals, but I didn't yet know in what capacity. Because you know, when you're young, the only thing you can really think about on working with animals is being a vet. Um, so that was my goal when I was young, but then uh, I made the best mistake of my life and I, my grades actually weren't high enough to go to vet school. Uh, so I studied zoology instead, uh, which was, like I said, the best mistake I ever made. Uh, I worked in zoos. Uh, the, the first zoo I was able to work at was a little zoo in Canada. I, I'm from Montreal in Canada. And it was a little, little local zoo that only had Canadian animals. So we didn't, <laughs> didn't have a huge collection. Uh, and I was a keeper for the herp section. So I had even fewer animals. As you can, uh, as you know, there's not a lot of um, reptiles and amphibians in, in the Eastern Canada, just because it's so cold. Uh, so that was my first uh, job. And I mean, that was really a keeper job. So that was fine. I didn't, I, I took care of the animals and I, I loved it. And I was like, okay, hey, I think this is the right, the right path for me. Then uh, luckily on my first year of doing my degree in zoology, I was able to get a job in the, in the big zoo of my province, which is called Granby Zoo. And then I, again, I was a keeper and I took care of so many animals because of the system that they have. Basically, I just went to enclosure to enclosure to just clean up. Uh, I didn't do feeding, I didn't do anything like that, but I can watch my, supervi my supervisors do the feeding. And I got really curious looking at how they fed the animals because there's just some things I just didn't understand. And I, I asked a lot of questions and, and I just wasn't satisfied with some of the answers I was getting. Like when I asked them, why are we feeding coatis? Um, cottage cheese and then the answer was because the vet told us to I said okay and then I asked the vet and the vet's like because they need it <laughs> so, okay so I really wasn't getting like the satisfaction that I wanted um I didn't I, I didn't feel like I was like learning why do we need to feed these things so then I took it upon myself to go and do a master's uh, that's when I moved to the UK uh, so I did a master's at University of Plymouth at zoo conservation biology which had uh, a big nutrition component. And that's just when I knew that that, that was it. Uh, this was, this was going to be the path for me. This was how I could help as many animals as possible through nutrition, uh, by doing conferences, by writing papers, by, you know, just by being able to 
slowly leach knowledge of how to feed animals properly uh, into the zoological community, then I'd be able to help as many animals as, as, as possible throughout my life. And then I went back to that same zoo after I had my master's. And that was really interesting because then it was like a twilight zone because now I, I knew a lot more. Of course, I, 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 I don't know everything now. I definitely didn't know everything then, but I knew more. And when I asked questions to the keepers, again, to, to my superiors, I got the similar answers. But now I felt like frustrated because this time I, I kind of knew that what we're doing wasn't great, but I had no power to change anything. So I was frustrated for a different reason. So then I was offered this uh, internship in zoo nutrition at Pinkton Zoo with my mentor, Dr. Amy Plowman, which uh, I know you know very well because she did an amazing webinar. Um, and so I had, I had a, two, a fork in the road. I could either do this unpaid internship in the UK, or I could continue on this zookeeper kind of don't ask questions, just do your job path. And I chose the risky option. I went to the UK. I did this unpaid internship, which ended up lasting for about two years. And it was amazing. Um, and I got to use my knowledge and learn so much and do research and, and become involved in the, in the IAZA zoological community and uh, that led me to start doing research on slow lorises. Uh, and then that research got published and then I was able to get on my PhD, which was on the uh, nutrition and metabolism of slow lorises, Javan slow lorises. Uh, and after that, I was able to get a job at uh, Singapore Zoo as their wildlife nutritionist, their first nutritionist ever. So it, it, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what a what a really you know great just you know in in five minutes like this whirlwind of things. So let's uh, backtrack a little bit on uh, some of your experiences because I think I mean one of the things that really resonates with me, you know, coming from a marine mammal background, we would feed all kinds of fishes, of course, and uh, and also you know sometimes clams or um, squid and and other, but we never really would do anything kind of outside that. And uh, even though maybe the fish pieces wouldn't necessarily be the exact fish pieces, some species might be eating of marine mammals, but still, and then coming into the zoo world, indeed, I also was kind of curious about seeing, you know, yogurt being fed and, and other yeah. types of things to animals that I, not coming from a terrestrial background, you know, obviously I had to learn and still have to learn so much about what animals, other animals eat. But uh, yeah, it's, it's really curious and I think, you know, your background also then going back to doing a master's and, and then you mentioned, you know, the slow lorises. So could, could we hear a little bit more about your work on slow lorises, what you did there? Where did you go for that? And, and what was the study that you then published? Sure. Um, so the first project I did was when I was at, at Painting Zoo. Uh, I had a very strong support from the, the head keeper at the time, Matt Webb, and he he acknowledged that there was something wrong with the diets. And, and I think that that's a very sensitive and difficult topic to discuss with zookeepers, because especially if you're new, you know, like I just started at the zoo and I'm an intern and then I'm talking about nutrition and I, I haven't figured out, or at least back then I didn't figure out the language to use that didn't make the keepers feel criticized because basically what, what, what they felt was that I was telling them that they're doing their job wrong and this diet is wrong and it's harming the animals. So it, it took a long time to be able to get people to at least open up their minds a little bit um, in regards to me and in regards to what I'm trying to achieve. 
So that's not anything wrong with them. It's, it's me learning how to communicate efficiently without making people feel judged or bad. So eventually we all understood that something was not normal with the slow loris diets because I mean, not just I think in zoo, but throughout all of the Yaza population and even the AZA population, the breeding is not great. There's a lot of health issues. Um, you have a lot of dental issues that then lead into abscesses and the abscesses get infected. And then the vets have to like remove half their jaw. And then because they, they're missing a jaw, you gotta like feed them these like squishy wet things. Some places were feeding them chick brains. And it's just like, it's not evidence-based. <laughs> That's the polite way that I can say. It's just not evidence-based at all. It's kind of doing whatever we think should work or, or whatever we want to. Um, so once everyone was on the same page that that wasn't working, we tried something a bit more naturalistic because once I did a literature review, surprisingly, there was enough information out there on what they eat in the wild for me to create um, a prototype naturalistic diet. So something that was based largely on insects and tree gum because they're exudativore. So they really love to eat tree gum, which is not something super common, especially not in, in the UK and Europe. Uh, and instead of eating tons and tons of fruit, like what most people are giving them, just a few different kinds of vegetables and then maybe some pellets in case you don't know what nutrients they need, like vitamins and minerals. So really just something simple, not extravagant or flashy at all, but it just, it worked. Their behavior was different. Uh, their health was different uh, as well. So that is that led to the first publication. And I'm can't believe that that was published because it had a sample size of of one. <laughs> so that was quite a miracle. That is excellent. Uh, I'm so yeah. glad to hear that. <laughs> and then um, I, I caught the attention of the world expert on slow lorises, which is Dr. Anna Nakaris from Oxford Brooks University. Um, and then we started chatting via email and then uh, there was an, a PhD opportunity for me there. Of course, as long as I found the money. <laughs> Because anyone can do a PhD as long as, as they fund it. Funding is the big issue. Uh, but I really, really wanted to do this. So I took loans out from the Canadian government. So thank you, Canada. Um, and then I moved to Indonesia for a year and a few months. And I was able to look at the Javan Solorises in the wild. So I live in this tiny little village on top of a volcano. And it was difficult. It was both the best and the worst time of my life, you know, mixed together. It was like the hardest and the best but definitely the most significant. And I was able to just watch them every night. We followed uh, about, oh gosh, I don't remember now. I think it was 11 different solarises. And uh, we rotated them and we had some lovely research assistants to help as well. Um, and I wrote down every single thing that I saw them doing or eating or touching or <laughs> looking at. And we, together we were able to come up with some uh, feeding rates. So by using these feeding rates, I could quantify, or I could try to quantify the actual foods that they ate. Because if you look at a lot of feeding ecology papers for any animal, 90, oh, yeah, a good 95% of them will report a diet in percentage of time spent feeding. So you have to be very careful with that because it's just the time that they spend eating that food. It doesn't mean it's directly proportional to the mass of food that's ingested. So if there's any animal that you read up on has a 50% feeding time of grass and a 50% feeding time of fruit. Doesn't mean that they're actually eating 50% of, of their entire diet is fruit. It just means that it's the time that they spend. 
So that is more or less helpful for us when we're creating diets, um, when we want to be inspired from their natural, um, natural feeding ecology. So when I was able to kind of break that barrier down and make feeding rates, then I was able to quantify it. Then I could create a diet um, that was based on the nutrients that I think that they ingested in the wild. So from there on, we moved to a rescue center, um, International Animal Rescue in Chiapas, also in Indonesia. Amazing organization, lovely, passionate, passionate, hardworking people. Uh, and they allowed me to test out my uh, diets that I created for these Solorises. And it, it worked out well. And now a lot of zoos uh, in Yaza and even AZA have adopted these diets that I created, uh, more or less, um, with positive results. So breeding is up. We still have some health issues. There's still some stuff we don't understand about them, like their body weight in relation to breeding uh, and breeding success, stuff like that. But overall, that was a huge step, I think, uh, for soloruses and for nutrition. That's amazing. That's just really wonderful. I like how you make those descriptions of, you know, you, you looked at everything they were touching and eating and, um, you know, what they were doing and getting, and also like, you know, how people might wonder, like, how do you do even do that? Right. And how do you tell them apart and all those things uh, that are so intriguing when people study animals in the wild. So that must've been quite an experience. It definitely was. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more to your PhD, what um, you know you did and uh, some of the outcomes of that, please? Yeah, so uh, most of the project that I just mentioned was all for my PhD. Um, but some of the results that we, that we got, um, I'm trying to think back now to the different chapters of my thesis. <laughs> um, besides actual diet, what we were able to recommend or some nutrient re recommendations because not every zoo, not every rescue center will have the same ingredients or foods available, right? So it doesn't, I don't think it's really helpful for me to say, oh, you need to feed them this specific pellet at this amount and this kind of gum and these vegetables and, you know, or, and these insects. Doesn't, they won't be available everywhere. So at least if I'm able to go one step deeper and then just recommend a basic nutrient range or a nutrient profile that, uh, that's thus far the evidence points that they do very well on, then at least we can kind of use other food items to meet those nutrients. Um, so if, if you don't have any crickets, then okay, you can use mealworms, but maybe, maybe you could use something else that would be higher in, in digestible matter instead, just to make it up for it. So although zoos like guidelines and they like very, very strict kind of copy paste, do this, uh, if we're looking at it from a larger, more worldly context, that doesn't kind of make sense. That's why we wanted to look at the nutrients instead. Um, and we also looked at their digestive rate. And this is one of the, the, the chapters of my thesis that I loved uh, because it proved that Solorises really are slow. <laughs> their digestion <laughs> is super slow. They're, they're like, if, if you look at their their food transit time and their food uh, mean retention time and you control for their body weight, they're as slow as a cow is, which is insane. Yes. So they, yeah. So they really, really are slow. Uh, it takes like more than 30 hours. And what's really cool is that when you add some fiber into their diet, which we know they have a lot of in the wild because gum is a lot of soluble fiber, their digestion slows down. So this is also supporting the notion that they can digest some kinds of fiber. 
uh, they can really get some energy and get some good benefits from uh, from gut health by giving them this kind of soluble fiber, uh, which up until that point was was not really considered for them. Uh, and I, I'm a huge advocate for a fiber, both for human diets and for uh, <laughs> primate diets. And, and yeah, I think fiber is the way to go. We need to take care of our gut microbiome. <laughs> Excellent. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and about metabolism in general, like slow and fast? And why is this important? Or, you know, why is it a problem if, if it's faster or slower or, yeah. Yeah, well, metabolism is a funny thing because we, we try and understand it, you know, and us being humans, again, we like to put everything neatly on a graph and like come up, make an equation and make everything fit somewhere. Um, but metabolism is really tricky because there's so many different animals and, and we want, like humans want there to be one equation for metabolism for mammals. We want there to be one for birds, but that's just not the case. So then we break it down. Okay, well, we want there to be one equation for carnivores and then one for, um, you know, one for herbivores, one for primates. But again, it doesn't work like that. So the, these really, really amazing papers done by these brilliant people in the 80s, 90s and 2000s, like uh, Nagy and Lovegrove uh, and Hasten and Lacey, they all got metabolic information from different species and plotted it on a graph and then created this, um, information. All of this was originated from Kleber, which has this amazing book called the, the Flame of Life or The Fire of Life or something like that. He was the original one who made an equation for metabolism. Um, but what we are finding out is that it, it doesn't work. <laughs> it, it's a starting off point. So I can find an equation for the metabolism of primates. Okay. And so let's say I'm working with the proboscis monkeys, this beautiful proboscis monkeys that we have at, at Singapore Zoo. Um, and I want to just, you know, review their diet, make sure they're getting enough energy and everything. So I calculate their body weight, their ideal body weight based on this equation. And it comes up with this amount of energy. I say, okay. Then I look at the amount of food that they're eating and it's like, oh, but they're eating two times that amount that this equation said, what am I doing wrong here? <laughs> so there's just still so much we don't know about metabolism and I think it's really easy to use an equation, but at, at the end of the day, you just have to look at your animals, you know, like right now I'm feeding this diet or I'm feeding this, this amount of energy and this animal is in what kind of body condition? Is it too thin? Is it uh, over conditioned? Is it ideal? You know, is it acceptable? Is it where you want it to be during its, this life stage or this breeding cycle? So I think we just need to look a lot more at our, at our animals. And, and there's a lot of new research and, effort going into creating body condition scoring guides for animals. And I think that's the way forward because, you know, working in zoos and, and especially for the, the thousands of keepers, they work with animals every day. So they, they need to be able to look at them and understand, is my animal getting enough, getting enough food or not enough food? And then sometimes it's just a matter of there's a lot of food being left over. So they don't like this food. But in reality, if they're in ideal body condition, then maybe we're just giving too much, you know? So I think it's really the art of looking at our animals and understanding what body condition they are. As long as we don't leave them to be over conditioned because we think that fat animals are cute, <laughs> which, <laughs> which does happen. Uh, yeah, so metabolism is, a, is an interesting and funny thing. So slow or fast, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You just got to look at your animals. Right. And it's really interesting also because we um, also get used to uh, animals, especially if we haven't seen them like in the wild or, or have studied wild animals, 
uh, a, a lot than we might think, oh, this is just what they look like. Um, and then sometimes yeah. when you get those comparisons, you're like, oh, you know, are our animals too fat or are the ones in the wild like super skinny or lean or not underfed, right? So, uh, exactly. yeah, so maybe you could talk a little bit uh, to uh, body scoring and how, in what sort of ways, because I, I don't know, um, you know, I'm not really an expert in this, but uh, for example, I'm a, I am a personal trainer. And one of the things that you learn is, for example, that um, muscles are heavier than fat. And, uh, and of course, yeah, so one thing that we might do is weigh our animals. But then, you know, the other thing that we did in a harbor porpoise study was actually looking at fat layer and muscle mass mm -hmm. and all those types of things. And then, of course, you have the visual kind of scoring that you just talked about. And uh, perhaps you could talk a little bit about these sorts of interactions and the things that you might want to look for when you're trying to gauge, you know, how the animals uh, are faring from, from a body condition perspective. Well, you definitely want to do both. You definitely want to weigh as well as do body condition scoring. So what's great, especially for smaller animals, like if you're looking at marmosets, you know, they're so tiny. So even if they lose, I don't know, 50 grams of body weight, that's very significant for them. That's a lot. So if they lose that over two, three days, like something, some, something's up, you know, something happens, something's wrong. Um, and body condition scoring for marmosets is virtually useless. You can either tell if they're a skeleton or if they're a round ball. You can't tell anything in between. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so it, it's still very dependent on the species at this point until we can develop some, I don't know, some other visual markers. Um, I really can't think of an example where only body condition works because I think that the scale and the weight is also important because of what you say, that it is true that muscle weighs more. Uh, and we know that a lot of reservoir animals maybe don't get as much exercise as they would in the wild. So maybe their muscle tone isn't as comparable. Um, so that's why body weight, I think, is very important to have, especially to detect short-term changes. But the visual body condition scoring is, is really underrated. It's really, really helpful and important, I think. And there's a lot of resources now. So if you go to negonline.net, which is the AZA Nutrition Group, uh, Nutrition Advisory Group. They have a whole page dedicated to body condition scoring guides. Uh, so you can click that and then look up, um, hopefully the species that you want or a model species, something that looks similar enough with a similar body conformation. Um, you can find that there and then uh, start doing it. Do it every two weeks and then just get Excellent. into it. Great, yeah. that's wonderful. We'll definitely, um, we have actually used uh, this website for some of the, materials that we have on the pause platform because it's such an amazing resource so we'll definitely put a link with this podcast for people to check it out and yes and thanks for the recommendation you know every two weeks and uh, and if you can you know get the animals also weighed on a scale yeah, yeah. in one way or another so uh, yeah that's just wonderful could you talk a little bit you already mentioned uh wildlife reserve singapore and you know being the first nutritionist on staff there can you talk a little bit about uh, your work uh, there <laughs> um yeah it, it it's a lot <laughs> we have sixteen thousand animals so it it's oh you can choose where, where you want to start or yeah i don't know i don't know where to start i don't know like where, where am i right now topics yeah anything you'd like to talk about that would be wonderful well 
I still remember when I when I first started, it's just looking at, okay, 16,000 animals and then, all right, I got to get my baseline, right? I got to get my bearing. So what has been done? And then what's funny was that the different animal sections were just being uh, managed differently. So some of them had diet sheets, some of them had writings on, on a bill, on, on a wall. Uh, some of them had scribbles on a piece of paper. And I mean, as long as the information is captured somewhere, that's great, you know? Uh, but what, what's really special about Wildlife Reserve Singapore from, from my, purely from my observation, just my opinion, is that because this zoo uh, is 46 years old, I want to say 46, and the, the team of head keepers, they've literally been there since they were keepers. So you have so much knowledge and, and practical information that is not written down anywhere. It's just with living inside these people. Um, so that is, is amazing because you have such a, a rich resource of, you know, how things were done um, and what works and what didn't work and stuff like that. But we, it's important to balance that out with, you know, new evidence and, and new science coming out. So it was really interesting because I, I think you can tell by now, I really like evidence-based and I really like research and I like to do research myself and, and help to train other people to, to do that. And um, it, it took a while for, for the team to kind of understand why this was useful. And until they could see with their own eyes, um, then it was kind of, you know, they're, they're just looking at me like, oh, he, he's going to make us do more work. He wants us to do this research thing for him. But it, it took a little while until people could actually say, oh, okay, now I, can, now I know that this works better than that. Or I know that this diet now is definitely better than, than you know, this other option that we had. Uh, just example. So it's really funny because it's, it's a huge mindset shift. Um, and sometimes it was really great. And then sometimes, yeah, sometimes we did a research project that didn't work out. Or sometimes we did a research project that showed that um, the, the, what we're doing now is, is better than what I propose. And, and that's all fine. Again, it's, it's not about wanting to change things. It's about just progressing and, and doing what's, what's best or what's most efficient or appropriate. Uh, so research was a huge change that I, I'm very happy uh, that WS is, is moving uh, in. And I'm happy that I was able to help out with that aspect because now you have the, the juniors that are interested in doing research um, and they're coming in with more knowledge and they want to test their knowledge and like, you know, use stuff and do stuff and they're very excited and keen. So I thought that was really, really interesting. And uh, it allowed me and allowed the team to do some really cool research projects, like, especially with pangolins. We were able to experiment a lot with their nutrition, with their diets, uh, to find something that works. And then we tried to find out what was most palatable. Because, you know, you can make a diet for pangolins that has all their nutrients that they need, but they don't eat it, and it's kind of useless. So we tried different crazy things to see what they found tasty. Turns out they like the taste of dirt, but not actual dirt. So stuff like root vegetables. <laughs> um, and they also liked some slightly acidic, slightly sweet things like apple cider vinegar, balsamic vinegar. Um, so that's really useful because WS also does really good conservation work. So they get uh, a lot, they're a rescue center for Singapore. So a lot of the native animals that are hit by cars, unfortunately, or something like that, they get brought to WS and that's where they're treated by the vets. And if appropriate, they're rehabilitated. Uh, so getting them to eat food is definitely obviously essential. <laughs> um, that's amazing. Yeah. 
yeah <laughs> just like listening also to it you know like um like it's fascinating and, and it's giggling sometimes i'm like balsamic what <laughs> so yeah yeah we, we tried everything we could everything we had yeah absolutely yeah and i love that you're d talking about evidence-based and and doing research and uh, obviously you know we could just add also your research page there where you have a lot of different publications and you collaborate on different projects could you Talk, us, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the research and some of the committees that you mentioned earlier that you're involved in. Well, IASA is such a great platform because even though, of course, there's politics, you know, because there's politics everywhere. And when you put like 1,000 people of different countries uh, together, there will be different politics, but they will work together. And it's funny because I'm, I'm Canadian. So by right, I, I like should never have even dabbled with, with IASA. You know, it should be... I should be the AZA person, but um, because I've worked and I studied in, in Europe and WRS is a member of Yaza, so I, they're my community and they're my, my family, if I could say. Uh, and it's just been amazing because they're so supportive of doing this kind of evidence-based research because, I mean, not, sorry, not any research, right? It has that value. But once, you, once they have an opportunity to have research, then they can help them manage their population better or measure or improve animals welfare then they're all for it and yeah if you send out questionnaires pretty rare that you'll get 100% of your questionnaires back <laughs> but you'll still get enough to get an answer to your question um, and it's just such a nice uh, environment for people to work together in and they all want to solve this problem you know they all want like okay because they're all living it they're all living the, the same issues that we have with some specific species or some specific situation. So um, they all want to look at it. And one, uh, one project I'm working on now is a Sifaka nutrition. So we know that there's a, a problem with Sifakas uh, with their, with their well, survival basically with breeding and the populations are, are quite low. Um, and then it's very similar to the Solores thing because, okay, it turns out that we have been feeding the same diet for years for like a long time for as long as since we've had them i think so it 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 yeah it's a nice time to i don't know reassess what we've been doing and then see okay or do we still want to do this are there any any other options what we what would we like to try how do we measure if it's better or not um so i've been working closely with all the zoos that have sifaka so luckily that it's not a lot so it's easy to work one-on-one -on -one with every zoo um, and now we're in the middle of analyzing every zoo's diets. See, they work so hard that for two weeks in summer and two weeks in winter, they weighed every single food item given and left over to their sifakas. So we're going to get a really, really good idea of the nutrients ingested by sifakas um, in winter and in summer. And it's important to get both seasons because sifakas are leaf eaters. They're folivores. So the different browse that's available in winter, which is very few uh, in Europe, maybe you know that, that's one of the hypotheses that maybe it's the browse um if you look at the published studies then actually they have a very poor a nutrition poor diet in the wild very 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 low in minerals so maybe we're giving too many minerals i don't know these are just ideas but what's great is that we're all working together to figure it out um and it doesn't really take a lot of manipulation so maybe people hearing this right now think well that's not research that's just looking at what you're doing and comparing it to information, but guess what? <laughs> that that is that is a form of research. It is you're looking at something and you're testing it out. You're testing a hypothesis. That's research. 
Uh, you don't need to go in the laboratory and do these fancy, expensive things. Uh, but but you can, uh, because uh, one example of a more uh, sophisticated research project is with the red pandas. So the small carnivore tag is fantastic and supportive. And they sent me so many samples of red panda poo. You have no idea how much, even during lockdown, like when everything was extra, like everything, the world was shut down last year. I was still getting poo samples via mail. Um, that's how dedicated everyone is. And we are working with a local university in Singapore, and they're doing a microbiome analysis of the normal feces and of some feces that have this kind of like mucus on it. So red pandas have this mucoid feces phenomenon. Um, and it's so common that it's been normalized. Which, which is unfortunate because we don't know why they do it. Um, and, and this is one of the things that I remember from working at, at my first zoo is that I was told that, oh, don't worry, sometimes they have multicolored poo, but that's normal. And I thought, huh? How is multicolored poo normal? I'm sorry, if my poo is anything, <laughs> if it's multicolored, there's something wrong. And I don't think that would be different for a red panda. Um, so we're looking into why they could randomly have multicolored mucus on their, on their feces. Uh, and uh, actually, I, I don't know the results yet. We had preliminary results, which showed that there is definitely a change in microbiome before and after they do their, their mucoid, I don't know, shedding, let's say. I don't want to give away too much yet though, but- um, We'll yeah, leave I'll, the suspense at that. We'll just- To be uh, continued, to be continued. Yeah. It's a, it's a Charles Dickens cliffhanger here and uh, to be continued and uh, look forward to the, to the results uh, of a presentation and, and probably a paper. So that would be very exciting. And, and I now, think, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, if you really are curious, though, you can read up on the latest paper on giant panda microbiome and because they have an interesting hypothesis. And of course, you know, we're testing to see if, it's the same thing for red pandas because that would, I mean, that would be really simple, but if it's the same and we can show that, then that's great. But it's looking at, um, they have seasonal diets, which is in the wild. They would go from eating stalks and calm to eating more leaves. So between those two seasons, apparently the, the digestive system has this kind of purge where it just thickens the lining and then releases it all, which looks like mucus. Um, and then the, the microbiome and what's left over is better adapted to digest and process the change in diet in the wild. So the, of course, that's our first hypothesis just because, well, they're slightly related. <laughs> At least they're, they're related in terms of eating bamboo. Uh, so maybe that's an adapt, uh, adaptation that, that both of them share. So go read that paper. It's really good. Yeah, wonderful. Well, also, apart from the... The nutrition working group will also, um, you know, link to this paper here. And you have already, of course, mentioned, you know, there's different types of, if, if you like, you know, how animals eat, what they eat, uh, foliivores and others. Um, and also this really important part of looking what animals are eating uh, in the wild. Can you talk a little about, you know, what sorts of, um, yeah, ways of eating or you know digesting do we have in different animals like across different species so for those of us who don't necessarily have that background what sort of patterns um, could we be looking at and what sort of diets 
Okay, yeah, that's a huge topic to discuss. But um, briefly, let's let's look inside. Okay, let's take a moment and look inside because the digestive system can give us so much information on what an animal is adapted to digest. Um, so we can look at three very basic archetypes of digestive systems. So we have a simple digestive system, which would be like a cat. So they have a simple stomach. Um, they like really nothing special, kind of just a long tube, you know, that 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 goes from mouth to to anus, and it's small intestine and large intestine. But the large intestine actually is not that large. It's quite small because they don't they're not really good at digesting fiber or anything. So you know that for them they're going to need something with available nutrients. It's going to be something like either meat or fruits um, because it's high in insoluble carbohydrates, uh, available energy. You're not going to it would be very rare for this kind of digestive system to have a, a very, very high plant or very high fiber diet. Of course, there are exceptions because there's exceptions to every single rule in zoo nutrition and probably in zoo husbandry. Um, so one example would be the pandas. So they have a very simple digestive system, a red panda specifically, um, but they're, they're not great at digesting fiber. They're maybe a bit better uh, through years of adaptation, but yeah, they're not great. Uh, then we can move on to something called a foregut fermenter. So that's when the stomach is massive. It has different compartments. If you're looking at ruminants, like a cow, then there's four chambers. If you're looking at um, a leaf-eating monkey, like pr proboscis monkey or langur, uh, they have a sacculated stomach that has four different um, they're not chambers, they're kind of just like dead end sacs. Uh, that's what's called sacculated, which these stomachs have tons of healthy and beneficial bacteria that can help to digest fiber for them. So definitely 100%, if an animal has a foregut fermenting digestive system, you know they need a high fiber diet. They will, on, they will only do well on this high fiber diet. And depending on if they eat more leaves, or grasses, then you'll have to look a little bit deeper. You have to look at their teeth. Um, you have to look at kind of the size of the chambers in their stomach. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the most important uh, part of that digestive system. And then you have the last one, which is a hindgut fermenter. So that would be something like a horse. So that usually is a simple stomach, uh, a normal small intestine, and then you have a huge and massive large intestine. So something like an elephant, like an orangutan, uh, all of them have just these huge, huge, huge digestive systems. Uh, sorry, this, this hindgut, large intestine. Some of them even have an additional um, appendage called a cecum, which is like an extra pocket that's filled with bacteria that can help. So rabbits are, are a very good model for that. And they, again, have tons and tons of bacteria to digest fiber. So we know that fiber is important for them, but a lot of them have this digestive system and maybe don't need as much um, fiber as, as the foregut fermenter would be. So, so this digestive system is a bit more complicated because you have a lot of animals with this digestive system and they're all very different. So this is the one where one rule does, really does not fit all. You know, some fiber would be beneficial, but maybe they would also eat meat Maybe they would also eat a lot of fruits. Maybe they would also eat, um, I don't know, a lot of nuts or it literally could be anything. So this is the more finicky digestive system, but 
the truth is, is no animal really lives in a realm where they only eat one food. It's just because we're humans and we like to put things in boxes and we like to classify them. So that's why we invented these archetypes of folivores, frugivores, um, you know, piscivorous, uh, stuff like that. So for some of them, it works. Like piscivorous, usually if, you know, if animal eats a lot of fish, then th th that's probably what they're going to eat. Like if you look at a penguin, I'd be hard pressed to find a penguin that likes to eat anything else except fish in the wild. Maybe the occasional, uh, no, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. Seals or sea lions, maybe is a bit, because maybe sometimes they can eat squid or something else. So, but ultimately it's still kind of, you know, it's just because we like to put them in those boxes, but especially when you look at very, very intelligent animals, like elephants, like um, primates, then they'll eat whatever they can uh, and, and whatever is worth the effort for them to actually find and, and digest. So it gets harder. So then we can kind of go in very global things like, oh, they're herbivores. But then if they eat an insect, are they, they're, I don't know, do, are they still considered a herbivore? Right. <laughs> so that's why it, it's, it's useful for humans, but really it don't, don't bet all your money on these archetypes because they're human fabricated. Thank you. Yeah, that's really helpful. And, you know, like you said, you were inspired as a caregiver to, you know, learn more, go off and do a master's, do a PhD, you know, and perhaps there are other people out there who have a real interest, you know, in, uh, of course, we are all caring for animals and their diets, but uh, some of us are just more interested in a particular topic than another. And this one, of course, is really fascinating and giving yeah. you know, some feedback and some background here uh, might just be another stimulus for some people to go oh yeah this is something that i would look like to do and like that we all you know pieces of a of a bigger puzzle like you say a sort of mm. global family and all and um, you know creating uh, knowledge and content and ways of engaging together to making lives of animals uh, better like you you said at the beginning of the podcast and yeah. you mentioned also that, um, you know, you, you went out into the wild and learned there and used that also to improve the diets of animals in human care and looking at wild feeding ecology. You also mentioned already some of the challenges in zoo nutrition, like in some, you know, in focusing on the nutrients, uh, because in some seasons it's hard or you, maybe in some geographical locations, some of the food um, cannot be purchased. Could you talk a little bit to some of the challenges that uh, that we have in zoo nutrition? My God, it feels like it's it's only challenges. <laughs> it feels like it's just insurmountable challenges and you, you tackle them one at a time uh, because it's, it's really kind of a new science. And that's not true. It's not new, but I think there's a lot more effort and more recognition of it now as opposed to back then because the first nutritionist was... Uh, Toronto Zoo, I believe. Yay, Canada. Um, but it, it, it was a while ago, but it took such a long time for zoos to kind of adopt nutritionists. And I think it's because it's so nascent and there are still so many challenges. So there's a lot more things that we don't know. Or in this case, it's like we don't know what we don't know, which is so frustrating. Um, and nutrition was born out of pathology originally in the Philadelphia Zoo. So you had... This, this, this pathologist who kept seeing, of course, dead animals, because that's his job, and would open them up. And then he kind of realized like, hey, you know, if this diet, if this animal wasn't deficient in, in this nutrient, then he probably wouldn't have died. 
So out of that, he created the first kind of little cakes. So he made these little cakes or cookies and added tons of minerals and vitamins and then fed them to the animals to just help to alleviate some, um, some deficiencies to help prevent some deaths. And, and it did work and it kind of blossomed from there. But again, it was so slow because we can, we can understand what an animal eats in the wild based on publications and talking to experts and field, field workers, but we just can't get those food items. You know, so replicating a, a wild animal's exact diet is highly unlikely unless you, you're in the area where the animal is from. But for most zoos, especially in, in, in Europe and in North America, that's just not gonna happen. So focusing on the nutrients that they need is one way to help alleviate that. And this is one of the, uh, my favorite quotes from Dr. Ellen Derenfeld, which is the goddess of zoo nutrition. Uh, and I was lucky enough to have her on my PhD uh, advisory panel. Um, so she says, you can't replicate an animal's diet. What you can replicate are its nutrients in the wild. So if you know, or if you can estimate the kinds of nutrients that an animal needs a lot of, or a little bit of, based on what we know that they eat in the wild, then we just replicate that using what's available, using fruits and vegetables and seeds and grains and nuts and then pellets if you need to, or supplements even. Um, but that's really what it should be focused on. You, you shouldn't be so obsessed with replicating the exact kinds of food. Uh, like, you know, there's this big debate on fruit-free diets, especially for primates, because they eat fruits in the wild. Well, the nutrients of the fruits that they eat in the wild are actually much more closer to our vegetables than fruit. So why are we so obsessed on, oh, they eat fruit in the wild, we must give them fruit in zoos? Because that's not what we're doing. The fruits that we're giving them are completely different. It's not even, what they eat is basically a vegetable because it's so high in fiber. <laughs> so it doesn't make sense to give them fruit. In some cases it does, like with spider monkeys, that they have such a quick digestion time and like literally no fiber digestion capacity. So for them, giving fruit actually is, is okay. They're the ones that I, I give a green light to feed them fruit, that's fine. The others, the others well, I'd like to have a discussion first. <laughs> um, so, so it's really complicated and you really wanna focus on the nutrients first as opposed to that. And even with chimpanzees, of, this is like the ongoing battle of my life, I think, is that because we know that they hunt colobus monkeys and they eat meat in, in the wild, that for some reason, some people think that it's necessary to give them meat in zoos. And I disagree. I don't think it's necessary because, yeah, they need that protein in the wild. And at the same time, it's kind of a social, cultural exercise that they do together. But um, in our zoos, we can give them lots of protein in different ways. We can give them all the amino acids and more that they need to thrive and to breed and to look great. Um, so just because they eat it in the wild doesn't mean that they need to or should get it in the zoo either. We really need to focus on the nutrients first, and then you focus on how to feed them so that we can make sure that all of their uh, natural feeding behaviors, all of them are stimulated and they get to perform all of these different behaviors that they want. Yes, and I think what, you know, is so important, like you you talk about all these different details and collaborations and the research and also connecting with outside organizations um, like universities and other research facilities and also really looking at you know in what way could we make it happen and in what way is it relevant uh, and also to what extent is this really really important for the welfare 
of the animals or is it something like you say is is something that could be done but is not necessarily uh, necessary so um, yeah they're really good conversations to have and it's also good to have uh, you know different uh, debates if you like on uh, yeah. what we can what we cannot do so uh, yeah I really appreciate that and I think that's such a wonderful thing also that um, that many zoos but also aquariums and other facilities with animals maybe you don't have the opportunity to have like somebody like you on staff but uh, in what way could you connect you know through other experts in other facilities or maybe you know collaborating with the university to get that information in there to help you uh, make diets better so there's so many platforms of course the zoo associations that you can become a member of so yeah, I, th I think contact contacting the tags, the yeah. taxon advisory yeah. groups, I think that's a really good resource to have. Yeah, yeah. And also, like you say, you know, it's the it's a separate science, right? There's this this uh, book, you know, animal welfare sciences, um, because, of course, nutrition is a science like behavior is. And, you know, even if you would then go into learning versus training or then the, the science of environmental enrichment it's really important to acknowledge that these are all different um, topics and different sciences that really need the dedicated time and expertise there. So I'm really glad that you highlighted that as well. So before, of course, we already discussed a lot of things from like bird's eye view to some really, you know, uh, detailed nuggets. And um, you have published uh, a lot of different papers and I thought it would be interesting to hear from you a few examples of ex uh, aspects of zoo nutrition, um, perhaps, you know, like marmoset wasting syndrome or, you know, low sugar, high fiber diets, maybe some other examples that you could talk about. And of course, you know, who uh, I think, you know, obviously we know now Laura's man, who if that is. Uh, but also that evil banana woman, that's a really intriguing title of a paper. So maybe you could take us through some of those examples. Sure, sure. Um, I think that the paper that I'm most proud of at this point is the uh, Great Ape Nutrition paper in International Zoo Yearbook, um, because we were able to have a really nice sample size. We, we looked at the diets of orangutans, chimpanzees, and gorillas um, in, in zoos, and we change their diets to high fiber ones. And then not only did we look at behavior, but we also looked at um, blood sugar. And it was really scary at first because we, I mean, we took their baseline behavior for, for a couple of weeks. And I mean, it's what you expect, right? So being perfectly honest, I think that Singapore Zoo has a fantastic exhibit because, you know, Singapore Zoo is known for not having cages or barriers or bars. So everything is kind of open. And because we don't have winter, um, we don't need to have sh uh, indoor shelters or we don't need to have um, winter houses or something like that. So the, the habitat kind of, yeah, it, it helps us being able to create the, the, the vision and the feeling that we want for the zoo. So you won't find cages. Everything is either hidden barriers or moats um, or islands or something like that. So it's really, really beautiful and naturalistic to walk through. and. The orangutans is no different. They climb up in the trees. They're basically free ranging. They could go up in the trees and then they swing with through the lianas. So they have a lot of exercise that I think the majority of zoo orangutans maybe would not get. Um, so their diet definitely should be different and catered to that because I think they, they, they definitely need more energy. So 
what's interesting is that going on their food-free high-fiber diet, they did lose some weight, uh, which is good if they're obese, but they weren't. Um, so surprisingly, I ended up eating, uh, adding some fruits back into their diet just because they needed a bit more uh, dense energy because I can give them a mountain of broccoli, you know, but once they're full, they're full. So they won't be able to get the energy that I want them to get in order to, to stay at their target weight. Um, so that's one of the like rare examples where we needed to get their energy uh, to be more dense because they're so active. But even though they weren't obese, we still found some of them that were pre-diabetic based on their blood sugar. So that means that if they were to continue in this lifestyle and on this diet, um, notably with this level of, I don't know, medium high um, soluble carbohydrates like starches and sugars, then they may have developed a full-blown diabetes, uh, which is definitely something we want to avoid. And by changing to the new food-free or very little fruit diet, then this completely reduced their blood sugar and the resting blood sugar, everything reduced. It seems like the, they regained the insulin sensitivity that, that, uh, that they should have in the first place. So to me, this was like one of my favorite um, findings, if you, if you will, because I was able to see physiologically the results that a healthier nationalistic diet has on these animals. It could prevent diabetes. It could, yeah, not prevent, but even reverse. And what's really funny was that, I mean, studying nutrition to me, I, I always thought, I never understood why people take medication for diabetes. I just thought, well, just change your diet and guess what? It's gone, unless you don't have type one. I mean, if you have type two, then you can actually reverse it. And what's funny is that it like literally two or three weeks after my paper came out, then then it was big news that this was discovered for humans that you can reverse it based on nutrition. And I mean, obviously they're not connected at all. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. But I just remember looking at the news and I was like, well, duh. I was like, why didn't, like, I, I couldn't be the only one, the only person who knew this. Like, how did doctors not know this? I didn't, it was just so weird that, that that didn't that that people didn't think that and I think because we're just so conditioned to like oh you have something take a pill you know you have an illness take a take a medication or, or or whatever but food really is medicine in a way it's preventative diet really should be part of the preventative health programs for all the animals especially older animals yes absolutely um, I think it's yeah. like they often say you know you are what you eat and there's so many uh, examples of how like like, like you say, reversing diabetes, that to me also is, is something so important. It's like, okay, how can you actually make yourself healthier by just focusing uh, and paying attention to what you put in your mouth and what you drink? And um, yeah, and absolutely, what can you do to make your health uh, much better? And, and I think also what you point to is really interesting with regards to probably some sort of uh, disconnect that we sometimes have between the different sciences. So, um, you know, like... You say, okay, how could doctors not have known that? Or, um, you know, like in what ways are we really integrating all the different sciences to that are related to like human well-being or to uh, other animals? And uh, and I think you know this is also where tags, associations, research facilities, and of course zoos and aquariums all you know coming together and putting all those pieces together so that we can learn from each other's uh, feedback and how they all connect, right? Exactly. And that's why I love nutrition because it, it affects everything. It affects health. It affects behavior. 
It could even infect, uh, affect how an animal uses their environment. Um, it, it, of course, affects uh, mental welfare as well. Like, yes. I just think nutrition has, has such huge potential to change how we look at and take care of our animals. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's not for nothing that often when we talk about, you know, caring for animals or caring for yourself, you know, we talk about sleep, quality of sleep. We talk about exercising, you know, you mentioned some animals might not actually get the same, you know, or good exercise, whether it's cardiovascular exercise or, you know, really, you know, strong bones, strong muscles, flexible, you know, the confidence that comes with that uh, and all that. And, uh, and of course, you know, we talk about nutrition, you know, this kind of these, these pillars that we often talk about when it comes to uh, caring for animals and of course also for yourself so and 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 i think you know you briefly because we're coming to the end of the podcast um there's one other question that i would like to ask you and that is you briefly touched upon it and it was about uh, geriatric animals so could you talk a little bit to um you know proactive management of geriatric animals regarding nutrition oh yeah um so i'm i'm so proud of the geriatric animal care program that we set up at uh, WRS and I, I, I really, okay, maybe I don't know at this point, but at least when we started it three years ago, we were definitely the only zoo that had this kind of advanced program um, because not only are the animals being followed individually once they reach 75% of their expected lifespan under human care, but they have their individual file, they're, they're, they have a specific diet change just based on the fact that they're older. So a lot of um, health issues that we know are going to pop up eventually because every old cat gets <laughs> gets arthritis. Every old cat, well, okay, I shouldn't say every. I'll say like 80% uh, get uh, kidney or pancreatic issues. Um, you know, like we, we know what health issues to expect based on the kind of animal um, because zoos are getting more and more older animals, which is a testament to how how, how well we take care of them because they're growing to old age. But that doesn't stop there, right? We need to continue taking care of them properly. So we need to acknowledge that they need different things when they reach that point. Maybe they need softer food if their teeth are, are not great. Um, we know they'll need more antioxidants. We know that giving them some joint supplements, giving them a lot more omega-3s, uh, it makes a huge difference. And um, I was able to test out all of these different supplements that I wanted to try and then see if it made a difference. So again, and this was just like guesstimating as best as I could based on research that was done on dogs and cats, um, on, on sheep and horses and falcons, because there's not a lot of research done on geriatric animals and on farm animals, because guess what? They don't live that long. As soon as they grow up to a suitable size, they are, cold and then eaten. <laughs> so it's not like there's a lot of papers on, on telling us what to do for a, a geriatric cow because there's not a lot of those in existence. Um, so I just had to really use as best as I could guesstimate um, what supplements or what nutrients or what diet alterations could affect or could help to prevent or solve some health issues. So um, we know that rabbits have a lot of eye issues when they're older. So that's why it would make sense to give them a bit a uh, taurine supplement. Um, same thing with, um, sea mammals. We know that a lot of them have eye issues as they get older. So giving them some lutein, some, uh, grapeseed uh, extract, uh, a lot of that can help 
again, I'm saying can help to prevent, doesn't mean that it prevents it 100%, because every case is different. But we did find evidence, overwhelming evidence, that giving omega-3 and calcium supplements to herbivores just kind of literally transformed them. We had this Bantang female who, I mean, you could, like, you could tell she old, okay? She was not very active. She old. And then she was on the supplements for, I think, six weeks before we started seeing an effect. And then this, this Bantang just like went back in time and she was like prancing around. She was flirting with her male. She was like running all around. It was, yeah, it was really, really, um, I won't say crazy. It was crazy that these supplements had such a powerful effect to alleviate this kind of joint uh, pain that she had. Um, so there definitely are things that we can do. What we don't know at this point is if we give the supplements throughout their whole life, um, does that mean that they had a deficiency in their adult life? That, that's the part where we don't know. And that will take a lot of time, a lot of research and uh, a lot of years in order to be able to solve. But at least at this point, we know that giving them some specific supplements when they're older really, really can help the quality of their lives. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. There's like, I, you know, I gave you massive topics, right? Like I didn't have super specific questions, but, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, it's really great. All the different, you know, selections that you chose throughout this whole podcast on, on these, like you say, really, you know, there's so much that we don't know. And, um, and also the frustrating part that we don't necessarily um, know what we don't know. But uh, yeah. great that so many people are working on it, so many zoo associations and committees and working groups and universities, so many places are working together. And, and I'm glad that you are one of the authors contributing to our uh, forthcoming book on the optimal welfare of aging wild animals. You're writing yes. um, the... Um, the chapter on on nutrition uh, together with uh, Dr. Amy Plowman. So that's really, really exciting. So thank you so much for being involved with that. And this is the end of the work of, of this podcast. And of course, we always like to um, ask our podcasters, almost putting them on the spot and go, do you have in conclusion, a nice animal story of a success story or so that you would like to share with us? A nice animal success story. Oh, or um, story that you're like, oh, that jumps to mind. That was just so, you know. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So, so at uh, the Jurong Bird Park, which is part of WRS, we have uh, penguins. We have uh, king penguins, and we have some um, humble penguins. And we, you know, giving them the normal amount of like Kaplan, um, and the 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 kings get some herring stuff as well. And the amount kind of just goes up based on their appetite. But once I put in a seasonality, so we started changing the daylight because uh, they're indoors. So we started expanding and re reducing the daylight based on a season. And we mirrored the amount of food that they should be eating as well, uh, or at least the abundance of food that they should have access to based on in the wild. And we, just, we did that just to see what would happen because we, we know that they had trouble shedding, uh, molting, <laughs> sorry, molting. And once we did that after a few months, like they molted really well. And then you won't believe it. We started having eggs and started having king penguin chicks, which we haven't had years and years and years. And that wasn't even the plan. We just wanted them to molt. And then we ended up having 
just all these cute little chicks uh, walking around, which was great because it it really shows that sometimes the diet is fine. Sometimes it's just about the seasonality or sometimes it's just how the diet interacts with um, hormones or with seasons and stuff like that. So that's why nutrition is amazing and yet so frustrating because you got to feed the right thing, the right amount at the right time, at the right place. And we don't know any of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That is just wonderful. Thank you so much, Francis, for coming on to this podcast. You know, I'm sure, I mean, we could do a podcast every week and still not, you know, be done talking about anything. Oh, nutrition. Um, and thank you so much. And I really look forward to connecting with you in the future on, you know, more, some of the cliffhangers we had today and some of more topics related to nutrition. Thank you so much. Um, Great. Thank you. Stay safe, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. That was the end of another wonderful podcast. Thank you very much, Dr. Francis Cabana, for coming on to talk to us to, about nutrition. And as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today.